Sid and Douglas, their sweat and their guts. They never drank water but whiskey by pints. And their shanty towns rang with their songs and their fights. Navigator, navigator, rise up and be strong. Oh, I have to... I have to... Fuck. Okay, I have to un... Okay, I got to uh, edit stream info, right? Okay, that goes, is it still going? Am I go, oh, there I am. Oh, I'm there, I'm there, I'm doing it. Oh, this is great. Okay, now I will go to Twitter and promote this so people can know I'm back. Let me get the guys here. It's moving slow now because I'm doing stuff, but I gotta get this finished. Maybe I can do it on my phone. Uh, am I getting people? I got one person out there. Am I choppy? Am I okay? Because I haven't had great internet. That's one of the problems I've had is my phone stopped working. I, I was no longer able to stream from my phone. I thought it was my Wi-Fi for a while, but then I found out, no, it's not the Wi-Fi. It's the phone. So the reason I haven't been streaming the last week or so is because of technical difficulties. And I know that that's pathetic, uh, but I am not a technically adept person. I finally decided, okay, now I'm going to just stream from my laptop directly because that's right, folks. This entire time I have been streaming exclusively on my phone because I did not, uh, I didn't have the dashboard Twitch thing on my laptop and it was too much technology for me. It made me uncomfortable, so I just literally did it on the phone because the phone already had it loaded, uh, and I didn't have to set anything up. So it no longer works. I need a new phone, but in the meantime, I finally got it set up today for the laptop. So let me just post this. All right. We're back to talk today about chapters six and seven of Reconstruction. So next week... We're going to go back to Wednesday, Fridays. That's always what I wanted to do. This was all an unexpected mistake bungle. I want to try to keep two a week. I'm not trying to stop because I'm having fun. I think these are useful. So on Wednesday, we're going to do just chapter eight because it's a little late, just chapter eight for on Wednesday. But then on Friday, we're going to do a game stream with Chris. We're going to play Anno Domine 1800 or something, uh, something like that. See, this is what I don't understand. Audio gets getting compressed to hell, but we can hear you really well. What is the difference between those two things? What does compressed audio mean if you can hear it okay? Can someone explain that? Can someone explain it for me, please? What is, what is it, tinny? Wow, fine. It's tinny because I don't have a dedicated mic right now. Uh, 
but I will now that I'm here because I only have because I only stream here and I use I use an XLR for the podcast. I only have the uh, I only have the lapel mic that I've been using with my phone. This thing, but since I don't have the phone anymore, I don't have that uh, uh, microphone. I think I brought it, but I'm not sure where it is. I can't find it right now, so I'll have to at least for now use the uh, the laptop microphone. But I'll probably in the near future be getting a a because uh, I want to be professional here. I want to be a little professional. So I'm going to bring a uh, a mic stand, hopefully, for next one. But anyway, yeah, so Chapter 8 on Wednesday, uh, Anno 1800 stream with Chris on Friday. We're back into it. We're getting into it. We're loving it. The Cadillacs stayed by the house and the Yanks, they were within... And the Tinker Boys are advice for them there without kin. They turned and shook. They had a look in the room where the dead man lay. Till Big Jim Dwyer made his last trip to the shores of his father. Lay. All right, here we go. This is so weird. I have the dashboard open up and I have my, uh, I have, oh, I have the whole command center here. I can see the chat. Uh, I can see the session length and the viewers. Oh man, I can see the bit rate. I feel like, I feel like Neo. I feel like the lawnmower man. Like I'm absorbing the internet. I'm becoming a true gamer. Get it. This is more power than I can handle, you guys. Okay. So we're talking today about, and this is long delayed, so hopefully everybody who's been trying to get these red had time to get them red. So we start with Chapter 6. And the beginning of radical reconstruction, baby. This is Congress coming back hard, post-passing the 14th Amendment, ready to lay shit down uh, and able to govern with Andrew Johnson essentially as an annoying uh, hindrance, but not a genuine threat to their power. Uh, this really does show that Congress is the real source of power in the con constitutional system. It really only has been the uh, the mutating effects of America's role as a global hegemon in a world empire that made it so that our presidents are so much more powerful now because they have so much of uh, uh, so much of like the state's uh, capacity for violence is is been totally abrogated to them. But in terms of legislation, in terms of creating like a legal framework for domestic concerns, power really does reside in Congress. And so after the big wave election that put the radical Republicans in the catbird seat, uh, although not uh, not just the radicals, and we'll get to that, uh, it meant that Johnson, Johnson, the audio, I sound like a robot. Well, what do you want me to do? I don't know. Is there a button I can press? If there's a button I can press, I'll do it. 
Okay, so they could govern without the president interfering. But when they get to the Congress, when, the, when Congress comes into session there, fall of 1868, uh, 1867, they have to say, what are we going to do? How are we going to govern? And that makes it, and that is when the divisions within the Republican Party really start uh, breaking the place, breaking the thing up. Because while the Republicans are all on the same page, that the Union had to be defended and slavery had to end in order to cease the, the conflict between the, the competing social orders in the North and South, there was no agreement within the Republican coalition among anything else. Because remember, the Republican Party is this Frankenstein creature of northern anti-slavery sentiment that encompasses everything from the old uh, American system Whigs, like uh, Abraham Lincoln was an example of that strand, to anti-Masons, to the fucking know-nothings, but then also uh, Democrats, anti-slavery Democrats, uh, who held a lot of the pre-war democracies ideas about fiscal responsibility and private property. And uh, so this new part, this new party doesn't really have a coherent uh, uh, ideology, but the war covers that up. The war and the fact that they all agreed on things like the Homestead Act cover that up. Uh, the, like obviously the so the hard money men hated the greenback, but it was a necessity for winning the war, so they had to take it. Uh, but but at the war's end, all of these conflicts reemerge because slavery is now over. So what kind of people are within this Republican coalition? Well, on one side, on the far left, you have the radical populists. And I would say that these guys are, if you want to get presentist about it, these are the good guys. These are the guys who understand most the political terrain and have accorded it uh, and understand also the moral terrain. They understand what the good is most, the closest of anyone who could have been. They understand what the good is and how to go about it. In that they understand that we need racial equality in this country, but the only thing that will let that happen is if we have economic equality. They understand that one cannot exist without the other, which makes them the progressive force. What we, in the 21st century, would call the good guys. And these are people like Ali, uh, Thaddeus Stevens in the House, uh, Benjamin Wade, in the Senate, and Benjamin Wade is another real tantalizing former president, uh, uh, alternative presidential what if after the Civil War. And then another one, Benjamin Butler. And I'm honestly, I'm getting more and more fixed on Butler as a character. I think he is one of the most fascinating figures of the 19th century. And I have an idea that I actually want to pitch to Hollywood uh, about a limited series about the, the life of Benjamin Butler starring Paul Giamatti. Because, as I have said, this is a guy who started the war as a copperhead and became the most radical of one of the most radical of the radical Republicans after the war, while being a spoilsman and a crook the whole time. Uh, I'm thinking about it. My first step is when I get done with the, this book, I might take a little break from the book club. Uh, I mean, I'll still stream, but I won't be like doing about a book like this where I'm trying to get coverage every week while I do other stuff. Uh, more at, for pleasure. Uh, I'm going to read Butler's autobiography to start with and then start looking more deeply into his uh, character because he is, to me, considering that he was almost uh, Lincoln's nominee or could have been Lincoln's VP nominee in, in 64, 
It's very tantalizing. So anyway, those are your radical populist Republicans. Then you've got the liberals. Now, these are the guys who think slavery is an abhorrence, and they may even say it's a moral abhorrence. They may even say that racial caste distinction is a moral abhorrence, but class, uh, class distinction is necessary and, in fact, good and must be protected. These are the people who say, we must free the slave so that he can become a, uh, a worker so that he can be, enter into market transactions. Because, I'm sorry, there is truly a hierarchy of humanity. We are at the top of it. We must maintain our position at the top of it. And that means, but that doesn't mean the brutal grotesquerie of slavery, which re- destroys um, destroys virtue and destroys uh, democracy. And that's all true. We need a more rationalized tyranny. It uses contracts and markets and private property. This is the rationalizing impulse. This is literally the capitalist uh, drivetrain. These people, the radical uh, Republicans, the, the liberal radicals, are the progressive movement from that point till now. They are the progressives of the 19th century. They are the Warren voting radical liberals of the current moment. And uh, one of the one of their uh, chief numbers is a guy who otherwise is one of the heroes of 19th century politics, Charles Sumner, the lion of abolitionism who was martyred in his Senate seat by the grotesque Southern Neanderthal, uh, Preston Brooks, carried lifelong injuries thanks to his gutter snipe. And, but he was a hard money, uh, low tariff, laissez-faire uh, politician uh, because he didn't really know or care about uh, – about economics, and so he had no coherent uh, objection to slavery. It was pure moralism. Like, there are people, there were uh, industrialists who hated slavery because it was inefficient, and they had no moral objection to it. They had a practical objection to it. And then you had people like Sumner, who had a fully moral objection, but that's because he was a fucking senator. He was not a capitalist. Or he did not take him. He did not see himself as part of a capitalist edifice. He saw himself as a statesman, and so he could have a fully moralized opposition to slavery. He could even have a fully. He could have a full uh, revulsion at slavery uh, as a racial classification. He could be for full equality. And I think Sumner was one of the most radical. He was the most radical liberal. And I would say that it's not because he was a bad person. It's like, oh yes, let's use let's use this uh, abolitionism to get to a Yankee Leviathan uh, corporate state. He just didn't know any better. He didn't know no better because how would he? He was not in power. Like you have to learn power when you're near it, and he wasn't. He was a speech maker. He wasn't even a vote whipper in in, uh, in the Senate. He just gave speeches mostly. And then you have the rest of the party. You have the moderates. These are the people I was talking about who hated slavery because it's inefficient. They're not necessarily motivated by racial hatred because, hey, most of them live in the north where there aren't very many black people at all. And it's not their problem if they're black people or not. It's not a thing they're scared of. Uh, So they don't have to worry about, like, living near black people and having that be a point of uh, of tension or anything because they're too rich to do it. These were represented by people like uh, Senator James Sherman of Ohio, who is William Tecumseh Sherman's brother. Sherman, by the way, as much as we love him for destroying uh, the South, 
but he was a moderate, uh, uh, racial moderate, meaning, sure, give him the, give him the vote, but otherwise, equality is no good. Nuh uh. And then you had the conservatives like Francis Blair, the old unreconstructed Jacksonian Democrats who just hated slavery because it was inefficient and hated the idea of sectionalism in uh, interfering with America's destiny as a nation. And they were wildly racist. They were uh, deeply motivated by racial animus. But they were still Republicans because they wanted the Union preserved. And these guys almost all, and their relationship to... Uh, to money question, to, to, to the, the question of the currency, runs uh, along the same spectrum. The farther left you were racially, the more you were uh, supported, at least within the Republicans. It's different in the Democrats. But amongst the Republicans, who were the party of at the end of slavery and therefore some sort of integration of ex-slaves into American society, they were the racially progressive party. Amongst them, soft money equaled... Uh, Racial egalitarianism, hard money, equaled racial exclusionism and race panic and hatred. Because hard money is the real basis of social hierarchy, because it is the currency, it's what distributes resources. And uh, hard money is a mystification that says, no, no, value is not determined by us, the government, it, uh, the state, capitalists, it is determined by uh, this special uh, metal that's in the ground, and the amount of metal we have is how much we can, we, how much stuff we can use, and how much of the world, how we can distribute resources. And so, it is associated with hierarchy. It is associated with reaction, and the only radicals who were for hard money were ones who were either lying about being uh, in favor of black equality or didn't know, didn't understand what money is. <sighs> so this split revolves throughout the entire party. Uh, so the party is split on these questions of race, and the, even the Eastern money that the, supports the Republicans at this point is also split. Uh, the the the, the uh, New York Wall Street uh, commodities fortunes that uh, revolved around cotton trade were all in favor of presidential reconstruction and wanted to keep what he was doing going, reintegrate the South as quickly as possible on the basis of racial classified labor uh, extortion. Basically, that's what they were uh, trying to get done as quickly as possible. Uh, and but there was other money in the North that wanted to see the South really brought uh, uh, into compliance in order if for nothing else than to facilitate uh, a modernized um, a modernized uh, um, uh, like a streamlined political economy uh, but uh, oh I, I forgot to say this about uh, Sumner Sumner objected vehemently to uh, racial class, uh, separation on in trains. He was opposed to any attempt in the South and in the North to segregate train travel by race. But he had no problem with uh, class separations because that's a matter of money. That's objective. 
who has money and who doesn't is determined by the market, not me, not us. It's not being done by uh, by some sort of discrimination uh, uh, of humans. No, no. It is done by the, the hand of God. He decides who has the money to drive in the first class. Uh, and of course, this is not true. This is, of course, ideology. So one thing they, uh, these Republicans are able to organize around is a Civil Rights Act that uses federal courts as an instrument to protect black rights in the South. And this is a way to reduce uh, the federal intervention into uh, the Southern economy because, or into the Southern society, because there was a great fear, especially on the right, that wanted to pay back all that debt in specie as quickly as possible, um, that they didn't want a long or expensive military occupation of the South. So having, uh, and of course, local authorities couldn't be trusted to enforce the law. So the answer they got up with was federal courts. And courts are always going to be the last resort of hidden power uh, because it's uh, it allows you to, the way that currency does, the way that uh, a, a, a gold-backed currency does, allows you to depoliticize something, take something out of the realm of um, of politics, of right and wrong, and into the realm of objectivity. The objectivity of the amount of gold that uh, something is worth, the objectivity of a, of a judicial decision. So there was no, so they tried to fob off justice for Friedman onto the uh, federal court system, even though those court rulings would have to be, you know, sought and enforced at some point, something they didn't really care about or, or care to think about, kicking the can down the road. Uh, and then land redistribution was limited to uh, a Southern Homestead Act that allowed government land in the South to be sold cheaply. Of course, all of the good land in the South, the good, profitable, the black soil that could be used for productive agriculture was fucking owned by the fucking land, giant landowners, by the latifundists. And so all that was left was swamp and timber. Uh, and very few uh, blacks were able to take advantage of it because even if they could have done it, even if they could have gotten that land and made it useful, they didn't have the capital to improve it because... Remember, the Homestead Act says not, here's some land and some tools. It says, here's some land. And you have to use your own capital, your own tools, to fucking build the thing out and improve it so that it's now yours. No one had, uh, former slaves, by definition, pretty much, did not have capital because all of their, all of their uh, labor value, surplus to their life, had been taken from them. So the only people who ended up, most people ended up buying Southern Homestead Act land were white Straw, straw owners who are there to do it for lumber companies. And of course, this whole time, there's all this good, rich bottomland that these traders had just forfeited by their actions. These people who had been defeated in battle on the question of what constituted their property, and that property could have been taken, but no. No, we cannot have, we cannot give people something for nothing, which of course is absurd. They fucking literally were, they'd worked on it their whole lives. They deserved it more than anyone who sat like a tick in the goddamn veranda did. 
Uh, but also because private property was sacrosanct. It was a power. The state didn't want to reveal its power to print money, and it didn't want to reveal its power to compel through force. Because if it can compel through force, who's doing the forcing? Is it the fucking puppets in Washington for Eastern banking interests, or is it the people? That's a question nobody wants to fucking answer if you're at the top of an economic hierarchy. This whole war was fought by, I would say, the mainstream of the Republican Party, party itself, as as like a machine, not the voters. The voters were more up in the air. But at the party, it was fought specifically, I would say, to uh, bring about a bourgeois revolution in America that severed for the last and to- the last gasp and for the last time the relationship between the people and the land of the country so that they could be part so that everything could be privatized and parceled out which had to happen in order to have full bourgeois social order emerge the Fre- american revolution was a partial bourgeois revolution but land concentrated land ownership and land fixedness was not totally defeated because capital wasn't powerful enough yet it took until the 1860s for the North to become powerful enough to, when challenged by the galloping, self-defeating mania of the of the South, to uh, to gain its independence, uh, it was there to crush it. It was there to crush the shit out of it, and finally bring about a liberal bourgeois order. And things like land redistribution went against that. Now, once again, that does not mean it was inevitable that that happened, because this is a party, and a party is just a, it is a leading edge of a social movement, and it does direct it to some degree, but if conditions change at the base, that brittle structure can snap. We've seen it before, and it could have happened then. That's why I have Butler as president. I just, I make fantasies in my head to live in the world I do. But I think... That was the party. That's what the party wanted. And the 14th Amendment uh, empowered the Union forces in the South uh, by disqualifying many Confederate veterans from service. Uh, it, impl- it, imp- it finally compelled a civic equality in, in, in elections, uh, but it left a lot of things to the courts. And, of course, most of those provisions would end up doing much more to help corporations than former slaves. The 14th Amendment, once it starts getting, uh, once it starts getting interpreted by Gilded Age courts after the social tide has fallen back and we're stuck in this moment of, uh, of like corporate power building and, and corporate uh, assimilation of all levels of uh, state power, uh, they're all of a sudden deciding that these provisions, which were about freed slaves, actually refer to fucking companies and, and, and corporate, uh, corporate uh, ventures, because that's where the power was. It's not because that was the correct interpretation. It's not because that's what the text said or any fair interpretation of the text said. It's what power said at the time. So Johnson, who could have let this shit go by, decides to veto the Civil Rights Bill. And not only that, he goes on a tour of the North uh, to try to whip up support in cities, uh, very Trumpian, like he was a Trump figure. Like there's a few presidents who who fit the who fit a general mold of of uh, bitter resentment, uh, paranoia, 
uh, hostility to the press and the political system in general. Uh, but in other respects, they're different. I would say Johnson, Nixon, and Trump are all in that mold. The difference being that Johnson and Nixon had genuinely felt and deserved and earned senses of grievance uh, and resentment to powers that be. Johnson always felt himself uh, to have been scorned by the elite aristocratic society of the South because he was a, a lowly, poor white trash tailor. Nixon, with his good Republican cloth coat, uh, the son of a Whittier grocer, couldn't go to fucking Yale, uh, felt, had to go to Duke Law School, which was just starting a law school, uh, felt like he was always having to bow and scrape before those more powerful than him. And they, and the, but, Trump was born on third base. He was born at home plate after a home run. He, he was born sliding in. And the difference, I think, between our ruling class and uh, the former ruling class is that we have reached a point now where power has been so dispersed to the algorithm of capitalism, like all of the superstructural uh, authority points where people had the ability to actually make a decision and have it mean something and have it be dictated by their conscience and good good judgment instead of by a number on a fucking piece of paper, that has gotten smaller and smaller. And that means that the people on top are now as filled with grievance and anxiety and resentment as the middle strata usually are. Because everyone feels compelled. No one feels free or powerful. Because there's always some other person, no matter the most powerful people in the world, if they're all there, there's one person who's not there. And that is the algorithm. Now, all previous generations of power, all different arrangements of power in the world, there was always someone there, and it was God. But God just meant your conscience and good judgment. It was up to humans. Now, you're never in charge. No one's ever in charge, not even Bezos. And what that means is that they get resentful, because that's what, having, that's what being in a position of precarity produces, is resentment. Like American precariousness is now universalized. And that's why we're having a culture-wide nervous breakdown because every social strata, every relationship to capitalism, regardless of whether how much power they have, is in a situation of precarity. So when Johnson tours the North, he gets some good receptions in some places, he gets some bad receptions in others, and he gets booed and heckled. Uh, and he just whined the whole time about how bad everyone was treating him. He said at one speech, I have been traduced. I have been slandered. I have been maligned. I have been called Judas Iscariot. Who has been my Christ that I have played the Judas with? Thad Stevens? Very unfair to me. Thad, bad Thad Stevens? Very unfair. Uh, and this doesn't help his case. Uh, he's a very horrifyingly racist, and more than anything, he just tells everybody, hey, you know that war we just fought that all your sons and brothers died in? It really didn't mean anything. And voters are like, you know what? It actually did mean something. And so when Johnson tries to form a national union party uh, where he would uh, presumably uh, use that to create a third way, like a uh, a, a center of uh, like dissident right-wing Republicans – to then later add on to uh, the Democratic nomination that he would then take to get reelected. Uh, it was so filled with 
copperheads and and uh, Confederate sympathizers from the North who had spent the war uh, being a fifth column that it alienated basically every Republican. They could say, look, there is no good, uh, uh, like, there's no way that anybody who fought for the Union could support this party. You're saying that everyone died for nothing. Sorry. So he ran an explicitly racial campaign against black rights, and he got his ass kicked. This is that election that brought the uh, brought the radical Republicans to power, where they could override his vetoes. Uh, and the fact that there was a bunch of violence in the in the South was not helping things. The fact that there were riots in Memphis and New Orleans, uh, and and, and in violence against blacks that was left without with impunity, it did piss off Northerners. Uh, there was a desire to reorder Southern society. There was a, a desire to make something meaningful out of the war uh, and not to allow the planter motherfuckers who had started the war to be put back in power. If, if It might have been uh, resentment, but it was resentment with good intentions. So with the 14th Amendment passing this Congress, uh, with Johnson doing nothing, can't stop it. Uh, the uh, Republicanism is basically settling on using the moving towards having suffrage replace economic power. We, we're not going to violate property rights and our understanding of property rights enough to reorder society by giving you the land that will allow you to sustain yourself. We will give you levers of political power. But of course, those are fake. There is no such thing as a level of political power uh, if there is a generalized social arrangement against you. Laws mean nothing. Cease quoting laws to men with swords, as Pompey Magnus said. And that uh, reality, sadly, would, would assert itself over the course of Reconstruction and prove that it was, in my view, the failure to redistribute land that was the single greatest catastrophe of the... Uh, Reconstruction era, and the thing that made all the worst results of Reconstruction possible. I don't think you get slavery solved, I don't think you get racism solved magically by uh, that happening, but I do think that racial rapprochement in the South is accelerated significantly. Uh, You see much, a much earlier emergence of a, like, potential multiracial working class working uh, collaboratively on the class lines. And as I've said, we've already talked about all the little roots and brand, little roots and tendrils of redistribution that were working their way into the soil when fucking Johnson came along and uprooted them. And that if you don't have, you have a different president, an Abraham Lincoln or a Benjamin Butler who maybe nurtures those roots instead of uproots them, maybe the fact that inevitably the North was going to lose interest and lose desire to spend money on Southern occupation would have still happened, but in a context where the where black, landed black uh, uh, freedmen are able to create networks of political power that make it so that they can fend for themselves. That's 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 the that's the good outcome that could have happened. It's not some magical pill that cha- and, and slavery. It is independent political power for blacks in the South that doesn't depend on the Freedmen's Bureau and the fucking Seventh Cavalry. 
And the only way that would have happened is with immense is with land redistribution, which Thaddeus Stevens, God bless him, understood, even though the rest of them, for reasons of uh, ignorance and uh, ill intention, refused to understand. So set chapter seven. So this 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, would lead to an explosion of political mobilization among the former slaves. Uh, and these were concentrated in this uh, civic association called the Union Leagues, which were uh, that started in the North as uh, uh, a <clears throat> as a civil support structure for the war effort. People behind the lines, men and women, or uh, uh, no, there were auxiliaries for the women, but the Union Leagues were for for patriots to to do their part behind the lines. Like this is for the hundred dollar men. This is for the guys who paid someone to take their place, like Grover Cleveland. They could go to join the Union Union League to sort of assuage their guilt at not getting shot. Uh, but they ex-slaves took that structure uh, and used it to organize their own political power uh, now that they could vote. And while most of these in the Black Belt were all black organizations, in places with significant unionist sentiment, rugged places like Virginia, like North Carolina, they were integrated union leagues. This is 1868 here. So these are people who are as racially uh, 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 culturated as any Americans have been. And they were cooperating in interracial union leagues. Uh, So they're there to start organizing people to vote for um, vote their interests and they start uh, having conventions where they try to hash out exactly what their interests are. Uh, and while they're doing that, uh, some of the white elite decide, okay, we're going to cooperate with this uh, and we're going to get our former slaves basically to vote with us uh, by uh, just hoodwinking them because what do they know? Uh, besides, we were such nice masters. Of course they're going to want to do what we say politically. Uh, one of them said, uh, it's in the book, a quote, uh, that I will, I could, I could buy the, he could buy all of uh, his former slaves' political allegiance with uh, a jug of hooch and a banjo or something. Uh, but it turns out that pretty much everywhere uh, they tried this, the former slaves said, yeah, fuck you. And contra what psychos like Johnson thought, who thought that the blacks and their owners were like in some sort of weird cahoots, uh, it turns out, no, the, the white people who uh, Friedman were least trustful of were, what a shock, white people who had owned black people until like two days ago. The poor whites, even if they had very vociferous racial views, at least they hadn't owned anybody. So the organizations that emerge, the Republican Party, basically, that emerges out of this organization in the South, this, this efflorescence of political activism, uh, is made up of, obviously, ex-slaves and free white people, or free black people, uh, but also two groups that you might have encountered from your high school history textbook, 
carpetbaggers and scallywags. Oh, don't we love to talk about carpetbaggers and scallywags? History gets so precious here, doesn't it? Oh, Papa, would you tell me of the carpetbaggers and the scallywags? I ever so much enjoy that one. So carpetbaggers were northerners who had come to the south in order to make their fortune, sometimes to make the world a better place, but often to do both. Uh, they tended to be educated, middle-class people who were looking to make jobs in politics, to make jobs in uh, land and, and agricultural speculation, to work uh, in the new industries that were emerging. Um, and they, some of them were uh, committed to racial equality. Others didn't really care. It was a mixed group. Scalawags were uh, southern republic, southern white Republicans, who were, of course, the most despised group among uh, both whites in the South, pro-Confederate uh, whites in the South, uh, and the Dunning School, which dominated Reconstruction historiography for about 60, 70 years after it was promulgated. Um, but in reality, these guys, they were not betraying anything. Uh, Pro-war uh, uh, white Republicans in the South, some of them were uh, were modernizers who were basically just going with the hot hand. They're like, look, the North, look, slavery was always an inefficient economic structure. Let's modernize this motherfucker. If we got to give the blacks some rights, whatever, let's just get that Northern capital here. Uh, and so, you know, they really were in a way kind of betraying things like James Longstreet, who had been uh, one of the top Confederate generals. He's, he's going to become a Republican. Uh, but a lot of them, the ones who were less high up in the uh, economic totem pole, had spent the war either uh, running around in the woods trying to escape uh, deserter patrols because they'd run away from the Confederate Army, uh, or they had spent the war in Union uniforms fighting for the Union because they never recognized the Confederacy as a legitimate government because nobody fucking asked them. People forget how undemocratic the declarations of secession were. It, it, wherever there was opposition to secession in the South, it was just ground over. There was no deliberation. They were just, it's like, oh, interesting. This entire area of the state says don't uh, secede. Fuck you. You don't even get recognition. You don't even get to come and vote at our rigged fucking election, which is rigged because they had rigged uh, suffrage so that the People who owned slaves got more votes than people who didn't own slaves. So guess what? We have more people at every one of these conventions. There isn't even any fucking democracy to it. Their slaves are voting for them. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of uh, whites thought that the slaves would vote for uh, their masters in after Reconstruction. But it was just because they'd structured uh, suffrage in such a way to uh, increase their power. It was deeply undemocratic. So these guys were not fucking traitors. They... They, were, they had nothing to betray. They didn't recognize that bullshit. And so, and they'd spent the war being persecuted. Many, there'd been executions. There was imprisonment. Uh, many of their homes and, and lands were confiscated by the Confederate government. Local uh, pro-slavery people would harass and attack them. Uh, they put up with a lot of shit to stay loyal to the Union, and they wanted to get rewarded for it. And you know what? Of course they did. And, it, and then, of course, you have uh, uh, free blacks from before the war most of whom are in urban areas, relatively well-off compared to uh, the black population in general, uh, because they had some you know, capital by definition or they wouldn't have been free. Uh, and 
Then you have, of course, the ex-slaves. And, and some combination of this group comes together into constitutional conventions throughout the South to build new uh, political instruction manuals for these new states. By the way, West Virginia never constitutionally admitted to the Union. It, there's, the, the, they totally ignored the constitutional, um, they totally ignored constitutional uh, order to, as has been established by practice, to bring in West Virginia. Of course, though, you know, it's a war. Fuck that. And then it was almost East Tennessee, too. Tennessee is almost as an East. Uh, so these conventions are a conflict between the modernizers who are looking for capital investment and populists who want to see things like debt relief and land distribution. And, uh, and the question of essentially the same question that the Republicans are asking in Washington, what degree of social justice, which degree of equality, uh, egal like true economic egalitarianism, are we going to add to social or to uh, uh, the social? <clears throat> are we are we going to add to uh, emancipation? You know, like we're we're now at bare citizens. Now, what does the citizenship mean? Does it mean you're free? Fuck off! You you now are enslaved by the market with no chance to have any sort of negotiating position, or does the state have an obligation to sustain a social matrix? that allows people to express freedom meaningfully. And this is the kind of thing that people like Wendell Phillips and Benjamin Wade and Thad Stevens understood. And of course, the ex-slaves almost universally understood without having read any of this shit for the most part, because it was obvious to them, only if you had money and position could you fool yourself otherwise. But there is a real question of how do you redevelop the South? What money? You, this is a this is not a communist system. Communism is not on the agenda. Karl Marx isn't walking through that door. How are you going to capitalize this new society? And northern capital, northern investment is the only thing that could do it. And things like debt relief and land distribution were scary to investors. And there, and even though, of course, people who were making these arguments were doing so self-interestedly, there was a real tension there between the social goals of reconstruction and the need for it to be funded at some level through economic activity. Because remember, the government's not going to do shit. Uh, but so they ended up mostly ad uh, adapting pro-business constitutions, but there's a lot, there's a huge expansion of the role of the government here. For the first time, these states establish uh, uh, the abolition of imprisonment for debt, um, creating the first public school systems, the first real government-invested infrastructure, uh, uh, the first public asylums and orphanages that these states had ever seen. So this is a big expansion of what it is un understood to be the government's role. Now, of course, there's people who are going to be trying to keep it as limited as possible, but then you're going to have the people pushing at the other side to make it bigger. One group pushing to make it to the other side. Bigger was a political organization made up of radical white populists uh, and ex-slaves in Virginia run by an editor named James Hunnicutt, who fled the state during the war because he was a unionist and came back to try to push uh, the post the Reconstruction era of Virginia into a populist, uh, racially integrated movement among Ex-slaves, smallholders, 
and uh, mechanics against the power of the Tidewater aristocracy. This is, in miniature, the movement that could have taken real root in the South. And, the fa- and we know it could have because it did. And, of course, Virginia is not South Carolina. Virginia is not Mississippi. Uh, but uh, the fact that this could find such ready ground for the exercise of real power that quickly, because the Honeycutt organization takes power in Virginia, uh, this alliance of radical whites, smallhold, uh, unionist smallholders, and uh, ex-slaves. It had a potential to be operative every other places. Uh, and once again, uh, if, if land redistribution had been persist, had, had persisted, you could have seen that uh, that movement uh, um, accelerated. Meanwhile, Stevens, he's dying. Poor, I really wish he lived a little longer. Poor Thad Stevens, he is dying, but he is still trying to push some sort of confiscation plan for redistributing slave owners, traders' land to the ex-slaves and small whites. Remember that Stevens understood the way to do this, the way to create a new social order in the South, is to say, "Hey, uh, yeah, black people—they're equal to white people now." But guess what, white people? If you've been fucked over by the slave uh, power in the past, if you've been fucked over by these hoity-toity aristocrats who denied uh, you any access to development or public education. Guess what? Now you get public schools. Now you get land. Now you get better terms for debt and financing. And here, here's some actual land that you can, you can, uh, you can set, you can develop. It's a, uh, it really is the only, he was a visionary because that stupid movie Lincoln makes him look like an idiot, right? The scene where he says, well, I would just, I would, throw all the fucking slave owners in jail and redistribute their land. And you're supposed to take it as self-evident that this is ridiculous. Like, oh, of course, he doesn't understand the need to compromise. Look at old Lincoln doing all his slack tricks to get the 13th Amendment. And this idiot's over here saying we could have the moon. Part of it was redistributing it to white people, too. And getting a cross-racial yeoman alliance against the parasitic aristocracy. It could have worked. But you need people at the top pushing along and not fucking destroying it because it's, 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 it's protean. Like the things are moving in a direction, but the momentum is determined by just so many flappering butterflies. Yeah, I just keep slathering at the thought of gold Benny, Ben Butler at the fucking helm. They'd start putting his face on the bottom of chamber pots in every fine home in the South. And then they'd get shipped to fucking Aruba or something. But of course, the party is afraid to do re- uh, confiscation because they don't want to scare away ha- capital. And this is the point where you have to say and point out and acknowledge that the phantom menace behind the scenes of this whole tragedy, as much as it's, of course, the doing of the former Confederate leadership, or I mean the former uh, the slaveocracy who is now re-enthroned, and Johnson, and reactionary poor whites too, uh, and uh, uh, feckless generals. It's also being pushed by Northern finance. The fear of confiscation was that it would spread past the South because Benjamin Wade, the president pro tem, who would have become president if they had impeached Andrew Johnson, was going around saying that the war between slavery and free labor was just the first phase in a contest that would between labor and capital that it reached its next step. Ben Wade anticipated Marx's concept of, or of the stage, I guess not anticipated, 
You got Ben Wade over here repeating Marx's concepts of staged revolutionary battle. The the man was a fucking uh, dialectician of the first note. And and this this got to this the heart of a question. Is the war about slavery by itself? Slavery is some unique evil. Or is the war against slavery part of a broader war, a broader conflict between labor and capital that had reached its next stage? Ben Wade and the radical populists had one idea. Ben and Frank, Ben Butler, those guys, they had one idea. But the center of the party was in the other, that no, slavery was a unique evil. And now it's gone, and we can now make money again. Uh, so the real dagger in the heart of Reconstruction, I would say, and this is why the real, like, what if is if Lincoln isn't assassinated or if Butler takes over for Johnson, because you really have to get that red redistribution going in the early 18, or right after the war. Because the question of the currency, the question of the debt, and species versus greenbacks was going to doom Reconstruction from a fiscal perspective. It was going to doom it as a political project, and it was going to do it as a as a viable uh, military in- intervention. Uh, but that happened in like the eighteen the, in sixty eight. So the outcome very well would have been different if you see a different uh, a different post-war environment, a different immediate intervention in the land. Uh, But by 68, though, the party, the Republican Party was fully reactionary because it was at the base, the party of Northern Capital. And so Northern Capital asserted its authority in a peacetime situation. It was only the fluidity of war that allowed for other forces to take power. Now things are solidifying and the question becomes, how are we going to repay the debt? Because the U.S. government took out a tremendous amount of money in order to fight the war and did so by issuing not just a bunch of bonds, but also greenbacks, money backed by nothing but the uh, will and authority, one could say fiat, of the federal government. Of course, this is exactly like money now, basically, with a few extra steps. But back then, this was considered a deep heresy for uh, for economic conservatives who make up the leadership, I should add, of both political parties, Democrats and Republicans, because they're both captured by their ruling classes. And now that the Southern elite have been brought low, Southern finance is replacing them. So they put out a bunch of these greenbacks, they put out a bunch of these bonds that are going to come due. And the question is, how do we repay these bonds, do we pay them? Even though they were bought, many of them were bought with greenbacks, which of course are worth less uh, than their their actual face value of gold because everybody can't go and get them at once or else it collapses. Um, so they have to circulate. So they circulate at a higher volume than there is gold. So they're worth less. They're more, they're, they fluctuate is what the thing is. They might be worth more for a while if you want to speculate on them, but they are they are uh, uh, unstable, whereas the price of gold is stable because it's determined by the supply of gold, which is generated by mining and trans- trade, not by numbers in the ledger, which is these guys hated. They hated it the, because if government takes over that role, what do we need the fucking capitalists for? 
Can't have that. Can't have that. Um, so there is a movement, uh, and uh, George Pendleton, a, a Democrat, proposes, hey, how about we repay those greenback bought uh, bonds in greenbacks? Uh, but of course, the uh, financial elite that bought these bonds is like, no, 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 you got to pay them back in gold. Even though we bought them with greenbacks, which was essentially means we gambled on them, we got to get all of our fucking returns in gold. We need to have our bets guaranteed. We need to basically remove the the, the uh, luck part uh, with our control over the government. And uh, liberal Republicans and conservatives all agree that uh, that uh, greenbacks are heresy. Uh, in fact, Sumner puts it in religious terms that it's like it's actually it's actually immoral not to pay back with gold because you're reneging on a promise. It's absolute flummery. It's the most rank ideology. Um, but so the, the Republican Party at its top doesn't want this, and it's uh, uh, the Republican Party at the top doesn't want this, and the the platform that they set up for '68 for the electionary run isn't the candidate they recruit, General Grant, who doesn't really have politics. Uh, they're like vaguely conservative, uh, is adhered to a hard money platform. Uh, but the base in the South, the Southern yeomen are dying for greenbacks. Uh, everybody's dying for more money in the system because if they have to repay the bonds in gold, they have to take gold out of circulation, which means less economic activity. And it was through debt relief and looser money that these Southern whites were going to stick around for the Republican uh, coalition. Uh, and even the and, and the base of the Democrats was for greenbacks too. Uh, like the populist base who had lost like the Jeffersonian fixation because they were fucking poor and they couldn't afford it. Uh, and so the Democrats, they put the Pendleton plan in their platform, but they nominated an arch conservative, the New York governor, Horatio Seymour, who basically never talked in the 1868 election about greenbacks. He talked about white supremacy because there's this danger of a actual multiracial democracy emerging in the South, and it must be destroyed. And it could be destroyed by applying race uh, as a flashpoint, which should obviously galvanize whites in the South against uh, Reconstruction, but also galvanize whites in the North, who are very racist too. Uh, and one of the things that helps them do that is that the Republican uh, platform is saying, we're not going to give you guys the debt relief the money or the land that you need. So it becomes a referendum on uh, it begins it becomes a referendum on um, on reconstruction as a racial uh, endeavor. And you know what? Give them credit. Uh, Grant won, but it was closer than it should have been. Uh, but anyway, I've skipped the Johnson impeachment because I got my papers mixed up. But uh, before that happened, uh, Johnson got impeached for uh, some bullshit with the Tenure of Office Act. Uh, it's all political uh, chicanery. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but the, the, the vote falls just short of impeachment in the Senate, probably because nobody wanted Ben Wade to be president because Ben Wade was a soft money radical and they much rather 
would have much rather had President Grant, the pliable man on a horseback who could just embody a political consensus without actually articulating any himself, uh, to uh, then be moved around like a puppet. This is the third time we've done this in America, or fourth time, uh, where we have recruited sort of a relatively apolitical military man to embody a uh, otherwise unpopular political uh, consensus. You have George Washington there to embody this reactionary uh, federalist attempt to uh, establish like financial rule. Uh, of course, it's economically progressive, you know, because it has to be, but it's still not popular. Nobody wanted that, really. Very few people wanted it, and Washington was able to paper it over. Grant was the man on horseback who could embody a a uh, agenda that was really only popular with bankers and a, a very slim sliver of uh, speculators and merchants. Most people who worked in factories, who uh, worked the land, had contrary interests, but they were separated by geography, by culture, race in the South, and race was used as a way to try to galvanize the election and break away any of these uh, nascent political uh, um, coalitions. And Francis Blair, who was a Repub one of those right-wing Republicans, ends up being uh, Horatio Seymour's uh, vice presidential nominee, and he just goes on an insane rant around the country doing John, uh, Johnson-esque racial jeremiads about like the horrible mo like mongrel beast army who's going to come and destroy everything if if, the, if reconstruction continues. And even in the racist era, people were horrified by the language he conveyed. Uh, and of course, Andrew Johnson who wanted to get a second term as a Democrat after basically giving them everything he, they possibly could have wanted in the White House for uh, four years. No, no nomination. Sorry, buddy. Thanks for doing the job for us, but uh, we'll take it from here. And, and as always happens, these resentful fucking middle-class shitheads end up getting owned by those more powerful than them because they're motivated at base by this paranoid, selfish drive which means they're, at the end of the day, suckers and can be totally had. And Johnson was absolutely owned. They used him and then spit him out. And his entire idiotic attempt to build a new constituency for his own power fails miserably. Good riddance to a drunken scumbag. One of the great, vile shitheads of American history. Right on, the, on, the, on Hell's Mount Rushmore with like John C. Calhoun. So rest in piss, Andrew Johnson. He didn't die right away, though. Sadly, though, uh, Thaddeus Stevens died just in time to see uh, Grant in power. And so next week we'll talk about presidential radical reconstruction, where we have radicals in charge of the Senate and House and General Grant uh, in charge of a hard money uh, pro-finance regime trying to reduce the monetary supply uh, at a time of massive economic collapse in the South while simultaneously trying to enforce racial equality at the bayonet point. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, 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 spoiler alert, not great. All right.
This was good. This was fun. We'll see you guys on Wednesday for Chapter 8. Bye-bye.